Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Well, good morning again. Good to see all of you here. Um, we have really, I have, I hope you've enjoyed it at least half as much as I have this series that we've been in, moving verse by verse, phrase by phrase through the revelation of John. Uh, if you showed up looking for more of that today, well, we've got something else in store for you. We'll be right back on that again next week. We've got all kinds of things, seven bowls of wrath, a prostitute riding a beast, all kinds of fun stuff. And, and we're going to unpack that. Uh, in later weeks, but today we're taking a break because we have a guest with us this weekend who's going to be speaking to our covenant women tonight, and she's speaking on a subject that I just felt it appropriate our whole church family just needs to hear about. I, I don't think it's any understatement to say that we live in a world right now that is full of much chaos, much confusion around anything related to gender, marriage, and sex. And in response to that, I'm also a little bit sad to say that the church, in our attempts to try to be faithful, sometimes has been rather ham-fisted in the way that we have tried to address this. Most of the time it comes in a reactionary means to culture as opposed to just leading out with this glorious, comprehensive picture of male and female that is given to us in the Word of God. And, and here's why I think this subject is important. Guys, at some point, this house of cards that our culture built is going to come down. And what they're going to need in that moment, and I'm talking possibly millions of refugees from the sexual revolution, they're going to need a church that is visionary, not reactionary. They're going to need a church that welcomes them with open arms, and they're going to need a church that knows how to give them a better picture. And it is in all of these things around this subject that I have found Amy Bird is asking all of the right questions. Uh, Amy is a theologian. She's a speaker, author of multiple books, actually one of which is not yet released, but I'm holding up my grubby little hands right now, called The Sexual Reformation. Uh, it actually releases to the public this week, but Amy was very kind enough, along with her publisher Zondervan, to make this available to our Covenant family today. Uh, and so if you'd like to walk out with an early copy of that, your church family has purchased those. We'll make those available to you for $5 each, and they're right through those doors at, at the end of the service. Uh, I've already read it. I am incredibly impressed by what I read. And ladies, do not forget tonight that you'll get more of what you're about to hear in just a few moments during your quarterly gathering, dinner, and child care, just like every other three months. Uh, every three months, we provide dinner and child care for this bigger event, and there's still some room left, and so if you'd like to be a part of that and haven't signed up, just go to the book table and, and get signed up, all right? But right now, it is my great pleasure uh, to have you introduced to someone that I have known for several years to be not only an earnest student, but a faithful teacher of God's Word. Will you help me welcome Amy Bird? and welcome. Thank you for welcoming me so much. Good morning. 
I'm happy to be here, also a little terrified. Have you ever been in one of those moments of your life where you're like, how did I end up in this situation? Why did I agree to do this? What is God doing here? Um, kind of all the emotions going through my mind right now. It's so curious how we come to these moments in our lives that we would have never really planned for, right? I've never spoken before on a Sunday morning during worship service, even though I've spoken a lot with many, many churches. And so here I find myself uh, standing in front of this loving congregation, getting ready to offer you an invitation to true freedom and belonging to Christ. Now that belonging, that's something that I really longed for ever since I was um, a young married adult, a thinking one who, you know, thought, okay, I'm, all, I'm 21 now, so I was a very young married adult, and I need to take this Christian thing seriously now. Like, I need to own my own faith, and I need to learn more then about who Christ is. And, and I wanted to grow alongside of others in the church, and I wanted to experience that reciprocity and discipleship that we see in Scripture, particularly in Ephesians 4, where we are taught about this kind of reciprocity, or 1 Corinthians 14, where we see it in corporate worship, or Romans 16, where we see this reciprocity in shoulder-to-shoulder ministry on the ground. But there seemed to be a a barrier of sorts as as I was striving for this kind of freedom and belonging in the church. And it left me lonely in God's church. So thinking through this led me to write books about men and women as disciples and, and what that means. It seemed like all those sections in Scripture that talked about discipleship didn't apply to to the women in my experiences, the same way that they applied to the men. Now, I never would have planned or guessed how my writing about this topic, because I I didn't know, am I the only one feeling like this? Um, That it resonated with so many more women in the church and and who were facing the same challenges that I was facing, and yet coming alive as we looked at the scriptures together I never would have planned to be invited to speak in different churches um, and church conferences and retreats all over the country and even outside of the country. I never would have planned on being invited to be a co-host in a popular podcast with, with a pastor and an academic. I certainly would never have planned on writing six books. And, I mean, if you would have told me that, you know, in my early 20s, I would have died laughing at you. And I never would have planned that all that would get me into trouble. (laughs) With each additional book I wrote addressing the layers of challenges for women in the church, some thought that that encouragement about a woman's agency as a discipleship or about siblingship in the church or examining the men's and women's voices in Scripture, and all the great privilege and responsibility that comes with that, you know, some thought that that was dangerous. And so that made me dangerous. 
a slippery slope to boogeymen such as evangelical feminism or liberalism. But what I noticed that is that my work was making visible what was kind of lurking behind these platitudes that we hear about the equality of men and women in the church. So I never planned to be an author. I, I just wanted to have this conversation. I just wanted to learn. And I never would have planned on the painful process that me and my family had to go through in our previous denomination just to try to hold church officers accountable for public harassment. It was a traumatizing experience and really messed with my sense of self and, and my dignity. The message that was first invisible but began showing itself throughout the whole process was that woman is less and that I don't belong. So Joel invited me to come and speak about my work on men and women in the church. My very presence here today is a challenge to many, a challenge to myself even. I had to do a lot of soul work <laughs> to accept that invitation. But that right there, that invitation, makes me want to invite you into full membership into this church. So that's what I'm about today. That's what I'm here for, an invitation to participate in the fullness of Christ as he's preparing our souls for love. So perhaps you guys came to church today thinking you were going to get a break from the preaching on Revelation um, and I'm not doing that, but when I saw what Joel was preaching through, I was very excited because the theme that runs through Revelation is that things are not as they seem, right? God scatters the proud. He brings down the powerful from their thrones, and he fills the hungry with good things. He sends the rich away empty, and he's faithful to, his, to the promises to his people, calling them to the living water of life. Revelation makes visible the invisible. And so we see what God's been doing all along. How does it do this? Well, Joel's been teaching you. He does, it does it through imagery, metaphor, and symbols. You know, we think that Revelation is a very complicated book in the Bible for us to read because of this. But the thing is, God's whole word is like this, capturing our imaginations to teach us things that we cannot grasp with just mere propositional statements about him. So today, I want to invite you to see how God even uses our sexuality as men and women, as symbols to make visible the invisible. And I want you to see how he uses the woman's voice too in scripture to function this way, often showing us the story behind the story. As a matter of fact, as I was describing Revelation, I was merely quoting from Mary's Magnificat. Maybe you picked up on that since Joel also <laughs> preached through that over Christmas. So this unveiling, it's not um, done once we close our Bibles at the end of Revelation. It's not something of the past 
with like this big pause that we're in right now before he returns to unveil himself again to us. What I want to do is invite you to see how this is all still unfolding in God's church today through the men and women who make up his bride. And I want to invite you to be drawn in to that love and dynamism in which we are invited as disciples, friends, siblings, and even as his beloved. But how do we get into that? I don't know about you, but um, how many one-liners have you heard um, asking you for evangelism techniques of how we can get to heaven? I know one of the most uh, infamous ones that I grew up around was uh, this scenario. Like, imagine that you were to die today, and you are standing before the pearly gates, and there is St. Peter. So funny, because this is like a Protestant method, but it's very Roman Catholic. And there is St. Is Peter standing before the, the pearly gates, and he asks you, you know, what is it that you have done or what, how you deserve to walk through these pearly gates and into heaven. Now, all of us who are properly trained, we know the answer, right? We know that it's nothing that I have done on my own, right? And I'm, I'm claiming the blood of Jesus here to be able to get in through those pearly gates. I'm, I'm claiming what Christ did for me in his death and then what he lived for me in his life, his righteousness. That's a wonderful thing, and I don't want to reduce that by any means because, you know, praise God for the blood of Jesus. I'm very excited that we get to sing together one of my favorite hymns after this. There is a fountain. That's what it's all about, right? However, heaven is not merely a transactional affair. And so we miss something really big if we reduce our homecoming to just drumming up the right answers to how salvation works. It turns the whole gospel into an exchange of propositional statements. We see something much more wondrous and and cataclysmic to all of our senses, even, in Revelation. We're not just brains on a stick. And so, spoiler alert, it ends with the bride of Christ joining her voice with the Spirit, calling us to perseverance, to come to the living waters. That's our invitation. So you're left with not only words, but the longing to get in with the King of Kings. Now, there's another woman in Scripture who provokes us to this kind of longing. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up right in the middle of your Bibles, to the Song of Songs in the beginning. Now, this woman in the song, she takes a completely different evangelistic approach than that pearly gates scenario. She's speaking of a king like Solomon, but we get a sense that he's even greater than Solomon because she calls this the Song of All Songs. Well, that should kind of get us to think, oh, I know that kind of language, right? holy of holies, lord of lords, king of kings. This is the song of songs. So it's the greatest song there is. It's the ultimate song. So this verse, this first verse, can be translated in several ways. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. It doesn't necessarily mean that Solomon was the author 
or even the man referenced in the song. It could mean that it's written in Solomonic style or that it's dedicated to Solomon, or there's other possibilities. Now, Solomon certainly is a key to unlocking some of the meaning in the song because it references his world, and he even becomes a, somewhat of a foil character in the song at the end in chapter 8, verse 11. Solomon was a king who, we're told, is a man of rest, and his name means peace. So ultimately, his name here in the song may be directing us to his greatest achievement, the construction of the temple, the place of ultimate sanctity and deepest awe. And as Ellen Davis says, perhaps the title, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, suggests that the song is one way of entering into that holy place, perhaps the only way, she suggests. Well, what I'm saying is that this woman, she's not just singing a song. She is taking us all somewhere. She's practicing heaven, in a sense. And she's showing us the golden scepter that's held out for us as she's pointing us to the king of all kings. And she's saying that we need to get in right there into the most intimate and revered place. Just getting through the pearly gates, that's not going to cut it. She wants into his chambers, and she wants to hurry it up. So we have there right in the beginning, and this is the verse I'm going to be working from, in Song 1-4. Take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. Now, there's no interview there about how to get in from the pearly gates. And her immodesty, it reveals to us that she already feels known and loved by this king, Her opening words are words of desire. Now, if you have read Esther, you know that in these ancient times, even the wife of the king could be killed for inviting herself into his inner court. So we read Esther's response to Mordecai in Esther 4.11. All the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard, and who has not been summoned. The death penalty. Unless the king extends the golden scepter, allowing that person to live, I have not been summoned to appear before the king in the last 30 days. What a difference we see here in the song. We have this woman taking us there by line four, chapter one. So she moves from before that the desire for the kisses of his mouth to caresses or lovemaking right to the king's chambers. Do you see how different that approach is? Heaven isn't just a place that's much better than hell. It's not just where we go um, to hope to see our loved ones or our pets who have passed. It's where we are going to be with the king as his bride, dwelling in perfect communion with the living God and one another for eternity. We're going to experience this with all of our senses in new bodies. Isn't that what the bride and revelation is making visible to us as well? Now, I happen to be kind of a, a bit of a theology nerd. 
And theology is just like studying who God is and what he has done for us. And then all those doctrines undergirding that. But here's the thing. The evidence of our destination for eternity is revealed in what we delight in, not how we answer a question from St. Peter at the pearly gates. So look at this woman in the song. She's full of delight, anticipation, and longing for the king. What is she responding to so strongly here? Notice how she's beckoning us to join her. When we read this song, we can't help but want what she wants. We can't help but feel what she feels and long to be a part of what she describes. What this woman does is is she ignites our imaginations, and she wants us to revel in what heaven will be like. It's called an eschatological imagination because it's an imagining of how things will be when God's promises are culminated. That's what eschatology is. It's It's a fancy theological word for the end game, right? Like how things will be. Told you, I just had to sneak in a theological term there, but I can't help myself sometimes. And and this time, I really think it's a a helpful one that I'm going to keep using. So remember that eschatological imagination. It's a curiousness of how things will be when Christ returns. So in the song, we see that, that God has us practicing heaven. Our sexed bodies as men and women even tell the story over and over of God's spousal love for his bride. There's something both visible and invisible represented in our beings. We already know that we have souls that are united to our bodies, right? But they're invisible. This invisible, united with the visible, it points us in a trajectory of why we are furnished that way. You see, it's the heavenly realities that inform the way that we understand the world, not the other way around. The woman in the song, she's revealing this to us. These truths provoke wonder, gratitude, and imagination to to live in light of their certainty. So we participate in this eschatological imagination together as a church. And we all have that liturgy of corporate worship that recalibrates us back in to that trajectory which we're headed, right? We get off track during the week and it's like, whoop, come on back, right? Come back to worship, be recalibrated into this story. Remember where we're going. All this is practice for heaven. So how can our bodies then and our relationships help us to faithfully imagine where we're headed. Well, all of Scripture tells this overarching story of God's covenant love for his people. The song, it kind of gives us that story in concentrate. It's like the espresso shot in Scripture or the bourbon shot of Scripture. Or if you're under 21, it's the, the frozen tube of orange juice that needs a lot of water before you drink it. It provokes our imaginations with with metaphor, allegory, 
imagery and typology, and it's so rich in meaning that you know, maybe it's a little intimidating for us to learn from. Well, that and all of its sexual language, right? I mean, who wants to get that wrong about God? Is God even in the song? Some say, mm-mm, no way. God's not even in there. It's just a love song to know when to cool it and to know how to enjoy married life. But that doesn't fly in the canon of Scripture. We're not exactly sure who the human author of the Song of Songs even is. There's not agreement on that. But we do know the divine author. And he shares somewhere else in Scripture that there is not a part of Scripture where he is not present. And we remember that walk on the road to Emmaus told in Luke 24, right? So we must ask, how is Christ present here? What does a song of love have to tell us about God? An erotic song about love. The song of all songs. Well, it opens with a man and a woman. So that provokes another question. Who are these people? Now, your Bible's probably like mine and has subheadings, right, before they speak, man and woman. We also have thrown in there some more characters. We have the daughters of Jerusalem. We have some brothers. We even have a narrator. I'm going to talk about the main characters this morning. Who is this man and who is this woman? That question has been answered in diverse ways, too. Some say it's Solomon and a young Egyptian bride of his. Ancient Jewish commentary interpreted it as an allegory of Yahweh's love for the Israelites. Others don't see the song as one unified piece, but rather a collection of Egyptian poems. So the people, well, they're inconsequential. Many Roman Catholics interpret a Marian interpretation of the woman. And then even now, there's new interpretations coming out. There's a new one that um, the shepherd and the king are actually two different men, not the same man. And this woman's trying to choose between the two which one she will love. Well, let's start with the man. We see him referred to a king and a shepherd. The woman continuously calls him my love and, and my favorite, the one whom my soul loves. In the end, we learn that she finds peace, shalom, Solomon, in his eyes. You see, the early church, all the way up into the modern age, interpreted the song as an allegory of Christ's love for his church bride and the individual soul of each believer. So the man is Jesus. He's the second Adam, the king of kings, the great shepherd, and the one who brings peace. Here we see that he's also a great lover and husband, and that all this was set in motion because of his love for us. So that makes all of us the woman in the song. Well, that's interesting, right? We're speaking, she's speaking for the collective church, and she's also speaking for the soul of each one of us, each one individual believer. So the song really isn't like other songs. It's dynamic, and it's sweeping us up with it in a sense. In it, we get a picture of what is theologically known 
as the whole Christ, or totus Christus, if you want to get fancy in Latin. Now, this is a notion that Christ and his church are so united in nuptial union that there is no speaking of Christ without his church, and vice versa. There's no Christ without his church, and there's no church without Christ. Now, we're not going to grasp the scandal of love until we begin to let this sink in as much as we are capable. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit more for us in Scripture. But first, I want to give you a disclaimer. Um, This is an exciting doctrine, an intimate one even. But neither Joel nor I want you to go Googling totus Christus or the total Christ and see that the Roman Catholics have kind of developed this uh, in some unbiblical ways, this doctrine. So I don't want you to Google it and think that that's the, the lane I'm headed towards or trying to lead you down. But I'm talking more about as Augustine, the early church father, has developed this doctrine, and then even later Protestants like Herman Bovink. So one of the times in Scripture when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, he asks if they remember what they've read in the creation account. He asks, haven't you read? Now, sure, they know the scriptures really well, and they want to obey the scriptures, but they don't seem to get it, the meaningfulness of God's acts, of his love itself, as they're, here they are trying to test him. So Jesus, in this, gets to the eschatological picture, the one that we too often miss, of God's creating us, male and female. So in Matthew 19, verses five through six, Jesus says, haven't you read? And he's then referencing Genesis 2, 24, which we read this morning. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Paul picks up on this in his talk about marriage, and he says in Ephesians 5, verse 30 through 32, we are members of Christ's body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and his church. That is profound or as my son would say, indubitably. Hold on to this like, picture of the whole Christ while we then look at this typology of man and woman that points us to that archetype of the total Christ. Now, I used another kind of big word here, typology. It, typology, what it does, it gives us a picture. It makes visible the invisible. It reveals the end game. A type is pointing to an arc type. And our bodies speak typologically. So if we return to this creation story, like Jesus is asking the Pharisees to, we're going to remember, and we remember just from our reading this morning, that God made man from the soil of the land that he gave him, breathing life into him. And before the creation of man, we even see a testimony of the glory of God's dwelling place in the creation of the heavens. So this testimony of the heavens 
it beckons us to where we want to be. We want to be with God in his glory realm. Now, woman, she was created different from man in a couple ways. She was created second, and she was not created from the soil. God made woman from man. Now, both the difference in mode and creation order tells us something. She's not from the earth, per se. She's created second. Some want to teach us, oh, well, she was created second. That means she's subordinate to man. No, there's another picture here. I'm going to invite you to look at what this big picture is that our sexuality tells. As an eschatological marker, she represents the second order, the final act of creation that we all await. She's arrayed with the glory and radiance of the sun. That's why Adam bursts out in poetic rhapsody when he sees her. She shows us of the promise of the life beyond probation. That's what we see in the end game in Revelation 21:11. The invisible is made visible. Now, I hope I just astounded you there. Behold, her very presence beckons man, all of us, to our ultimate hope, our end, the collective bride of Christ. Man was to pass through probation with his bride and ascend the holy mountain Zion, which her very body represents. And we read in Revelation 21, 9 through 10, we see this picture unfolding. The bride, the wife of the lamb, the holy city of Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. The first woman, as his necessary ally and helper, was to be a corresponding strength in, her, in their mission to receive this great reward of eternal communion with God and one another for them and their progeny. That's exactly what Satan went after in his deception. He offered her an alien glory. But God is ahead of the story. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, left his father and his mother Zion glory realm to cleave to his bride and ascend with her to the holy of holies. Our bodies and flesh and signify this good news, this love. We are like icons showcasing the story of the outgoing, overflowing love of the triune God. This is so profound. We, every one of us, was created to share covenantally in the Father's love for the Son by the Holy Spirit. And so man and woman reveal the deep mystery of an eternal Trinitarian covenant that is prefigured in the creation story, telling the story of the Father's gift of a bride to the Son. It's right in Scripture. We see that foreshadowing in the creation story. In the creation of woman, we already have a picture. So Adam is put to sleep. 
He's put down, right? It's almost like he's dead. And where does woman come from? His side. In this, we see a picture of the church flowing from the side of Jesus who gave his life for her. This is the overarching story that we find in scripture, that heaven and earth will come together, that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth where God's people will have eternal communion with him and one another there, Christ and his bride. Now the bridegroom is masculine, and man typologically speaks of the means of this ascent and union, pointing to the love of the bridegroom, the incarnate Christ, who is the first to love, the first to give, and the first to sacrifice. And woman typologically speaks to the realm and the people of ascent, Zion bride, the holy city. And in the song, we experience an explosion of this typology with the woman celebrating in it, teaching both women and men what it's like to be the bride of Christ. So Christ and his bride equals the whole Christ. Now we see this mystery again of the whole Christ in the passionate prayer of Jesus to his father that uh, is recorded in John 17. Over and over, he prays for oneness with us. He refers to us being given to him in verse 2 by the father. Well, how does he know? How does he know about this gift? Because it was given in eternity. It's an intra-Trinitarian covenant in which the father gave this gift of a bride to the son. And the son promised then to secure the work of redemption for her. And the spirit promised to apply that work for us. Jesus speaks to it again in verses four and five there. This covenant was made with the one will of the triune God. Over and over throughout this prayer, Jesus prays about how we are a gift from the Father, and he prays for our oneness with him. And he says something profound. He says, like him, his disciples are not of this world. He says that in verses 14 and verse 16. He repeats it. When he shifts from speaking of the disciples who are right in his immediate care to all of us who will believe, this language only intensifies. Read verses 21 through 23 with me. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Wow. And then he prays as if we're already in heaven, longing, or as if he's already in heaven, longing for this consummation of our unity with him there. In the next verse, he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you love me before the world's foundation. 
Paul does this too. He speaks as if we're already there. Um, in Ephesians 2.6, he says, He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. What is that a picture of? That's a picture of the total Christ. In a sense, we are already there with him. And yet, here we are feeling that longing with Christ for the consummation of that unity. In the song, we enter into both the rhapsody and the ache of the already and the not yet. Now, Augustine, he developed this theology of totus Christus um, in his work in the songs. And he would see, he would read the psalms like... uh, In some of the verses, he would read them as if it could be Christ talking or it could also be the church talking. And so in his second exposition of Psalm 30, he points too to Jesus' words in Matthew 19 and Paul's in Ephesians 5. And he says this, if two in one flesh, why not two in one voice? Let Christ speak them because in Christ, the church speaks. And in the church, Christ speaks, and the body speaks to the head, and the head and the body. So he goes on to explain how we are many members of the one body of Christ, points to 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Now, I want to follow this concept and say that that's what we see playing out in the Song of Songs, and it's helping us to practice for heaven. Christ is preparing our souls for love. How? He is inviting us to join with the voices of the man and the woman in the song, Christ and his bride. The very way that their voices are used encourages this. Isn't it interesting that the song opens and closes with the woman's voice? In fact, the woman's voice is dominant in the Song of Songs. And and that's pretty amazing considering the patriarchal context in which scripture was written. We see the man in the song encouraging her to speak twice. And the latter are the last words he utters in the song. He says, you who dwell in the gardens, companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear you. She does that. She ends the song with her voice, calling him to the spice-laden mountains, Zion, that her own body represents. This is an evangelical song. She's calling him to herself, and she's beckoning him to come to his bride and consummate all things. And that is a call for our own longing for this. Do we do this? as a church? Do we encourage one another to speak of Christ's love for us and and ours for him and then encourage one another to do that soul work, to love that way too? Because it is a soul work. What would that look like then in our friendships? Are we vulnerable like the bride in the song? Do we express where we are, like honestly, spiritually? 
or emotionally? Can we share what we're lacking and where we'd like to be? Do we speak Christ's words of love to one another? Let's look at how the voices of the bridegroom and the bride so intermingle in the song that it's as if they're one and the same voice. I'm going to whip through these pretty quickly. They're going to be up on the screen. The woman opens the song saying, for your caresses are more delightful than wine. Well, that's repeated the same words back to her by the man later in chapter 4. How delightful your caresses are, my sister, my bride. Your caresses are much better than wine. Later, the narrator, the voice of Yahweh himself, tells them to drink, be intoxicated with caresses. The groom again echoes the bride. Um, She says the fragrance of your perfume in chapter 1, verse 3, and he says the fragrance of your perfume in chapter 4, verse 10. He twice says to her, your eyes are doves. means he sees his spirit in her. And she mirrors, his his eyes are like doves. The bride in the song identifies herself as a lily of the valley. And the groom mirrors her, saying, like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among young women. The woman says that her lover feeds among the lilies. And the man describes her breasts like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, that feed among the lilies. The bride waits for him until the day breaks and the shadows flee. And leading up to their consummation, he reiterates, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will make my way to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. That's the language of sacred space, by the way. She picks up on that mountain spiciness at the end of the song, and she beckons him, run away with me, my love, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. Now, I wish I had time to break down all that imagery. It's just wondrous and metaphor there, and it's in my book. But we see this mirroring of language done in a very playful way in the song. What can we learn from that? Well, on a practical level, we see that these lovers are good listeners. They're reciprocating, uh, they're longing for, and their delight in one another. They're absorbing one another's truths. That's something worth meditating on in our own marriages. Do we love this way? Do we listen this way? But here's the thing, and I'm not here to talk about our marriages as much, because this isn't primarily a message for married people, even. On a deeper spiritual level, which we really need to get first, she's beginning to see herself through the eyes of Jesus. She's being transformed into this union, even as they're valuably distinct. Totus Christus. That's what makes a difference. Two in one voice. And it changes the way we read scripture, and it changes the way we view one another. We are practicing heaven when we begin to believe this love and when we enter into it with one another. So when you're reading the the Song of Songs, do you read these words as Christ's words to you and your words to him? Do you see yourself in his eyes? You see, 
this is what so deeply ministered to me when I was going through my own trials. Reading the song as Christ's words to me and being able to use the words of the bride to speak back to him. That's where we can restore our sense of self and get that back. Do you see Christ through the bride's eyes? You see, we're in a sense practicing heaven or maybe entering into that reality that is ours when we read the song this way. Christ already gives us the words. Are you struggling in how to pray? Use the words in the Song of Songs. Think about the fruit of this kind of reading. In the church, are we speaking Christ's words to one another? Are we listening to our brothers and sisters this intently together? Are we in this together? Because Paul says that we're members of one another in Romans 12, 5. How, how will that vision change the way that we value the distinct contributions of all the people here to see one another's giftedness with gratitude, to share our needs. How will this encourage us to be honest with one another while also pointing one another to where we're headed? How will it increase our empathy in the church? How will it help us to step into one another's burdens and and help carry them without shame until the day breaks and the shadows flee? So what's been made visible here? Do you see her? The bride of Christ in all of her splendor? As my friend Anna says, the prominence of the woman in Scripture parallels the Spirit's prominence. She's present and yet backgrounded. She's visible yet obscure. However, in the unfolding, she comes increasingly into view until she looms as large as day in Revelation, the bride as the final symbol of mankind. Are you uncomfortable with that, men? The woman is obscure in Scripture, not because she is less, but because she is last. She is indicative of things to come, yet she's the treasure worth finding as she represents what eye has not seen, what ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Do you see heaven and earth uniting in this consummation of Christ and his bride? Do you see how our very bodies represent his spousal love for his people? This is an invitation then for men, like the second Adam, to be the first to love, the first to give, and the first to sacrifice. This is your submission. Pope John Paul II says that Christ is the bridegroom because he's given himself. His body has been given. His blood has been poured out. In this way, he loved them to the end. That's how Jesus defines leadership, right? In Matthew 20, 
The bridegroom is masculine, and this is the masculinity that we see pictured in creation, as well as in the second Adam, our bridegroom. And in this, we see that Jesus, in his masculinity, dignified women. Like Adam, he sees her as gift, as she represents the gift of the bride that the Father gave to the Son in eternity. She represents both the bridal people and the glory realm for which we're headed. So this is an invitation for women to the competence of Christ's bride. Joining our voice with the spirits, like the bride in Revelation, and so many throughout Scripture, not joining our voice to Satan's, like when he deceived Eve and offering her an alien glory. It's an invitation to be an ally to our brothers, pointing to our destination with longing and great hope. That is our submission, not sabotaging their vulnerability and being the first to sacrifice and love, or by ignorance, or by passivity, or to be a corresponding strength, and not by undermining sabotage of the masculine love. So in a sense, the bride in Revelation and in the Song of Songs reveals that all of us are preachers, all of us are revealers, all of us are storytellers. Each member here is gifted and commissioned to use our gifts within the household of God as heralds of the king, the great bridegroom who is to come and who is coming again. The Revelation bride, just like her, we're to call our sisters and our brothers to perseverance, like the bride in the song, helping our sacred siblings to long for and delight in the one who is notable among 10,000. Do you see him? Do you see the bridegroom? I invite you then to come to these living waters to recognize your great thirst until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Continue to see what is real, beautiful, good, and true, and rise together each day, practicing heaven, until that great day when our love will be consummated. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you help us to see what is real, Lord, I pray that you help us to believe these words in the song of all songs that you've given us. And I thank you that, that this song is in your word, Lord, that we can trust that this is divinely inspired word of God and that you have something to teach us about your son, Jesus Christ, in these words. I pray that through your spirit, you would give us the eyes to see that the way that Christ looks at us in the spirit, and that we would beckon others to the living waters that we're about to sing about, Lord. Thank you for the story that our bodies tell, and I pray that, that we would revere that and that we would honor that and that we would respond to your call. Let me hear your voice. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 
Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.